Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. There are 66 books in the Bible, but to understand sin and redemption through Jesus, you must start from the first book, where God breathed life and set the stage for the unfolding story of His living word. Join us as we go through the book of Genesis in this sermon series titled, Grace Upon Grace. Give the Lord some praise as you grab a seat. Wow, wow, wow. Special. Thank you so much, Bayou City Worship, for leading us um, so, so well. Thank you. Uh, welcome to Bayou City Fellowship Tomball. If this is your first time here, uh, you made it for a great Sunday. Every Sunday is a great Sunday, but you made it for a great Sunday. Uh, if you have a Bible, we are studying the book of Genesis. We are in week two of that study of Genesis, and we will cover the entire book. And I'll tell you, if you've ever been to church and confused about where the books of the Bible are or where people um, are looking for those different chapters and different things. Uh, this is the easiest study you'll ever have because you just go to the front of the Bible, flip a few pages, and then get to Genesis 2. It's going to be the big number 2, and then you'll be there in the right spot. So Genesis chapter 2. Um, let me read a little bit for us, pray for us, and then we will continue. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Sorry, starting in verse 4, says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush on the field was yet in the land, no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for this time, this season, to study the book of Genesis, the book of origins. Um, and Lord, I pray that as we study your words, you would open up our hearts and minds to understand you and what you made us to do and what you made this world for, the purposes of both creation, of, of the world and creation of us. And Lord, I know that there's many folks today that are looking for meaning, looking for purpose and so, Lord, I pray that as we study your word this morning, you would give us greater clarity into what our purpose is here on earth under you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever I go to a mall or ever I go to a location, um, I usually go to the directory. So if I'm going to the mall, I don't know where things are, I go to the directory and there's always this sign uh, right there at the start of the, of the directory and it says this, you are here, which is very helpful because oftentimes I have no idea where I am in that circumstance. In fact, I'm one of those people that is directionally challenged. Uh, just to kind of communicate this a little more clearly, uh, when Hillary and I first got married, um, we decided to go on a backpacking trip into Colorado. And I had cousins that lived in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, and we were gonna meet up there. He was gonna help, my cousin was gonna help me pack up my, my backpack and, and her pack and just to, for us to be in the right spot so that we could go and enjoy this mountain 
that's an adventure. I've shared this story before, but I think it, there's no better uh, segue I can put to describe the fact that I don't know where I'm going other than this story. Uh, so we start the journey, and it's, it's easy at first. And if you've ever been hiking in Colorado, you know that it's, it's beautiful and lush and green if you go at the right time of year. Um, and so as, as we start this journey, my, my cousin says, hey, as, as you're getting these packed and this thing, stuff together, um, uh, do you know where you're going to go? And I'm like, yeah, you have a map for me, right? And he's like, yeah, I've got this topographical map. And so he gives me a map that looks something like this. It didn't look exactly like this, but it looked roughly like this. And, and this is what we did back, um, back in the day, people. You know, we didn't have a, a smartphone that guided us. We, we had these physical copies of things. And so I got the map, I've got the pack, I've got my girl, and I'm, it's my opportunity to show my woman how much of a man I really am, right? And so we go to this beautiful mountain head. Uh, we, we start the journey, and the start is easy. I mean, it's, it's this easy hiking down to this lush green valley. And so as we're walking into this valley, we're like, hiking's easy. This is the best, right? It's so beautiful, so pristine. And then we get to a point in the trail where it starts going up these switchbacks. And switchbacks are kind of switchbacks. You're going to hurt more than you've ever hurt in your life. And so you start going one switchback up the next all the way up. And, and as we're going, um, what we began to realize is that it starts getting colder as we're getting h- higher. And, uh, and what started out as simple and sunny, uh, the, the clouds start coming in. And, and as we look up ahead, the, the path is covered in snow. See, we had decided to go in early May in Colorado, which if you know what you're doing, you don't do that, right? You go in June, July, it's early May, the, 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 the trail is starting to get covered. And so we start kind of snowshoeing our way through the trail, like we're not going to be swayed, we got here. And we have this plan that we're going to hike through this trail, um, go over here and camp at this waterfall. And as I stand there at one point, we come to this kind of cliff and I'm looking at my topographical map going... Babe, here's what I think. I think we're going to have to scale this cliff. <laughs> You're going to have to hike over here. And as we go about a mile or two that way, that will be the waterfall where we will camp. And I look back at my new bride. And by this point, she is covered in snow. And I'm like, you want to turn back? And she's like, yes. Like, what are, what are we doing here? And then we made the long, defeated journey home back to a warm bed at my uncle's house. And so... The reason I tell you that is for this simple purpose. If you don't know where you're going and what you're doing, you're going to run into a lot of problems. And at the start of this book of Genesis, God is trying to clarify to us, hey, this is who you are and this is where you are in my story. This is who you are. This is is what you're meant to be under God. And this is where you fit within the story that I am writing. And if we get that off course, we'll end up in a place we don't want to be. And so Genesis chapter 2, I, I love it because really God is, is, is zeroing in on an aspect of creation that's extremely important. In Genesis chapter 1, we looked at God's creation of everything. The sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies of space. We looked at God's creation of everything. And it, it's almost as if the scripture goes from a macro level crea- to, of creation to more of a micro level of creation. And he zooms in on the creation of, of man to show us what we're created for. And what we're going to see are four things in this section. First, the personal nature of God. 
Secondly, the place that God had put, has put you. Thirdly, the purpose God has for you. And fourthly, the people that God is surrounding you with. So the personal nature of God, your place, your purpose, and the people God has put with you. Um, as you study the book of Genesis, um, I'm just going to give you this for fun. This is for free. Uh, th- there's an outline describing the book. Um, and the author of Genesis used this term to describe the outline of the book. And it's, uh, scholars call the word, it's the Hebrew word, toledot. And in each, each section, major section, there's 10 sections of the book of Genesis. And I'm just going to show you that outline uh, as so you can look at it. Because you want to know that uh, there's research done for the sermon. So here's your research. In chapter 2, verse 4, we see that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That's what we're going to look at today. Um, In chapter 5, you begin the generations of Adam, then the generations of Noah. In chapter 6, chapter 10, the generations of the sons of Noah. In in chapter 11, the generations of Shem. And if you were were to divide the the book of Genesis in two large sections, it would be chapters 1 through 11... And then 12 through the end where we get Abraham and the seed. And what you see what God is communicating in the book of Genesis is, is this is my creation of everything and I'm zeroing in on a specific purpose and a specific person that will bless the world. And again, these toledotes are kind of markers along the way for how God is revealing his story and his plan in history. And in our section this morning, we're looking at the first of those toledotes, the, the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and in that day that God made man on the heavens and the earth. And it's so important to to look at it this way. Last week, Genesis was this large explosion of creative effort, that God formed everything by the the power of his speech. And at, at one level, you would ask the question, are these two creation accounts? is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, basically two separate accounts that were slammed together by an author just so we would cover all of our bases. Well, actually, no. What God often does in his communication is he shows you the big picture and zeroes in on some particularities so that we can learn more about God and his purpose in creation of of humanity in particular. And so in this section, we're going to learn, first of all, the personal nature of God. It says this, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And now it says this in verse 5. When, uh, in verse 4, in that day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When there was no bush on the field and no land um, and no small plant of the field that had sprung up, then the Lord God had had not yet caused it to rain on the land. And what's interesting, and if you're reading it in Hebrew, this would pop out to you. It's the phrase, I'm, gonna highlight, I'm just going to highlight it for you to look at in verse 4. The name of God is the Lord God. Now, in, in Genesis chapter 1, they used a word to describe God, and it's used all throughout Scripture, and it's the general term for creator. It's Elohim. And so all through Genesis 1, you have this name of God, Elohim created, Elohim bara, and each thing was created um, in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, you have a a new name introduced for God. You actually have it side by side. You have Yahweh, Lord, that we translate Lord Elohim. Yahweh is that covenant name of God that he's going to give to the people of Israel. 
Moses will receive that name from God when he, when God says to him, appears to him in a bush and says, go free my people. And he asks, who will, should I say sent me? And, and God speaks, I am who I am has sent you. It's that covenant name of God to his people, um, the nation of Israel. And he says, he says, look, this is my covenant name for you. And so what God is doing in the second section is saying, not only am I the God who creates out of nothing, I'm a God who is personal who is covenanting myself with you, is promising myself to you. And it's so interesting that God wants a relationship with his creation, not just for it to exist, but to know his creation intimately. And he, he, it describes a problem. It says that there was no man to work the ground. Uh, generally speaking, it, it talks about the creation of, uh, there was no, there was no uh, plant or shrub. And, and the, re- the reason it's describing that is, is likely because it's saying there was nothing within the fall that had occurred. There was no thorns and thistles growing up and, and there, was no, the, the, there was no rain on the earth, meaning there was no flood that destroyed the earth. This was this picture of perfection, but there's a problem. There's no man to work in the land that was, he, was created. And it says, so God, it says, formed man out of the dust of the ground. And that's interesting. The, the word for formed is the Hebrew word yasar. It's the same word used as a potter working in clay. And you see God describing first his covenant name. But then he says he begins getting his hands dirty in forming man. He gets his hands in the dirt. Now, does God literally have hands? No, it's figurative. But it's like that God is forming intentionally this man. He's touching the man. And it even goes further to describe this intimate um, relationship when it says that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, verse seven, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. It's like God came down and woke him up with a kiss. I don't know if you've ever been close enough to someone to feel their breath on the back of your neck. It's either very creepy or exhilarating, right? A friend of mine played football and there was a football coach that would grab the guys by the helmet and pull them close and you would just feel the breath and the the spearmint gum. He'd be like, son, listen to me. And, and, and his, he would give him these instructions. And at one moment, the guys would be like, yes, yes, sir, yes, sir. Open your eyes, son. I'm trying, sir. And, and you would feel the breath on him. And what, what God is doing in this moment is he's getting face to face with this man. And it says he breathes into him the breath of life. He, he animates him. His spirit is put in him. And there's something unique about the creation of man that's different than every other created thing. They have the unique capacity to connect with their creator, God. And it says he was close enough for a kiss. He breathed into him the breath of life and he was animated. He got up, he started moving. This is beautiful. Do you know that God wants that type of close personal relationship with you? He wants to know you intimately. He's not a distant God that spins it into motion. He wants to have a personal relationship with his creation. He wants to know you. He wants to be close enough to be a breath on your neck. Do you know him that way? So first we see that God is a personal God, but secondly, we see that the man is then placed by God. You were created to create. 
Look at verse 8. It says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So he began as a potter, and now God is a, a planter, a farmer in some ways, in the east. And he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the, out of the ground the Lord made a, spring, to, made a spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed from Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that, gave, that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good, and, and bellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. And, in that, um, and that one flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows from Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. And, and you see that God creates paradise as this rustic, raw, beautiful creation. It says that he planted a garden in the east of, of, of Eden. That word Eden means delight. It says that God created this environment, this garden, for, for man to, to be there, to keep, and to cultivate this land. And it describes the land very in, a, in an amazing way. It describes it with, with rivers. And it describes it with, with raw ore. I mean, look at the description. It says that these rivers are flowing around the garden to supply it with nutrients, to supply it with the the ability to plant and grow different forms of of plant life. And and then it says, and there is gold and onyx, all these um, costly materials and, and beautiful materials. See, God set man in a perfect, pristine environment. But I want you to look at something about that environment. As you think about paradise, as you think about delight, what comes into your mind is probably closer to margaritas and beach chairs, right? <laughs> Somewhere in Tahiti, right? And, and you're like, oh yeah, this is paradise. And, 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 and there's, there's really nothing to do other than just sit. Like that's your picture of paradise. And for many of us, when we think about God's creation of Eden, like that's the image in our mind. We're just like, so Adam just like, I don't know, he had a tree house. He hung with the monkeys. It was so good. It was, he just rested and ate coconuts and bananas. Like that's kind of what it looked like. But that's, that's not what God is describing. He is describing this creation as having the raw resources in which to create. That's what he's doing. You see, man is made to be a co-creator alongside God. So he says that the, the problem with this, this garden is there was no man to, to keep and cultivate and work the land. And, 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 and what he's saying is, is, is not that, that God was, was needing like someone to work. He's just like, someone needs to like till this thing. What's going on here? He's like, no, no, I'm creating man with wisdom and intelligence and ability to create alongside me, to to take these raw materials and to make something beautiful alongside me. He sets it up that way. And he gives man one prohibition. He says that the first that the that there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what that is. Um, is, is one fruit good and the other fruit bad? Actually, what's what's happening here is that God is giving man freedom with restraint. Freedom to experience the pleasure of God and enjoy this garden of delight, but with one prohibition. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it doesn't mean that that that, that fruit in and it of itself was, was destructive. What it means is this. God is saying, 
you are given freedom to experience this land, but under my leadership, under my guidance. And once you take the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and you take and eat and bring that into the garden of, a, uh, of that experience of, of choosing to reject me, what you have done, humanity, is you have brought the knowledge of evil through your personal experience. You've experienced what it is to rebel. I've, God makes everything good. There is nothing evil under his leadership. But humanity has the opportunity to rebel, to introduce evil into perfection. That's what the, he has the opportunity to do. So it's paradise with parameters. And, and, and here's the deal. That's what we're created to operate in. Um, for many of us, we think that, that, that f- true freedom means a release of all restraint. Like I don't need to order my life under anything. But, but C.S. Lewis has some um, really incredible insights into this. He says, look, when is a fish most free? Not when it's out of the water on land. Now, if a fish could think, it'd be like, I don't want to be constrained by these waters. Like, I just want to get on land. Um, what would happen? It would die. Simple questions here. It would die. It wouldn't make it. It wouldn't experience freedom being outside of the environment it was created to thrive. The same with us. We are meant to be under God, to order our lives under God, and, and there is freedom with restraint. So there's one prohibition, but look at the provision. He says, every fruitful tree is placed there in the garden. And the rivers bring fertility to the land are there. And and beautiful raw materials to, to work and to make things of beauty, gold and bellium and onyx, these, these different precious metals. God gives lavish provision. But I want you to see this. He doesn't give a completed paradise. It's not done. There's no iPads there, right? There's no iPhones. There's no computers. He says, I'm going to give you this raw space to create. And some of you men, as I say that, you're like, absolutely. Like your dream is to go to somewhere like in Washington State and just make a log cabin. You're just like, I just want to take my raw talent and just like go to town on a tree and build this log cabin and bring my wife and be like, see, baby, I built this for you. Like that's your dream right there. Taking the raw resources and making something beautiful. And that's what he puts in Adam's hands. He's like, you get to be a part of co-laboring under my authority to make things that are beautiful. And I'm not going to tell you everything to make. I'm just going to give you the resources, the tools to be creative and to do things alongside me. And then he gives Adam his first job. In verse 15, it says, then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded him saying, you may surely eat from every tree in the garden. Eat all the fruit you can. It's a great dietary habit for you, Adam. But you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And what we see in this section is that your purpose in life is to work. 
Like work isn't an evil thing. Now, it is a very different view of work than, um, than other cultures. Uh, some, some cultures do not necessarily believe that work is a gift. They see work as a, as a burden. In ancient Greek mythology, there's the mythology of Pandora's box. And Pandora went to this, this box and, and she opened it up and what was released was everything that was evil into the world. Death, disease, and work was released into the world. But that's actually not what we see in this creation account. We saw God working in chapter one and he rested on the seventh day. And then he makes man, he says, and I've created you to work to take the skills and the resources that I've provided to make something beautiful. We work like God works. And he's given this garden to cultivate, to keep it, to take things that are disordered and in disarray and bring unity to them, to do the same things that God did in Genesis chapter one. When, when the earth was formless and void, the, Holy, the Spirit is hovering over the services, bringing it to life, bringing order out of chaos. And in many ways, God gave him a place to practice. The Garden of Eden was that training ground for him. It's that training ground for him to learn what, what work was like. And then he says, he brings some animals to him. He says, hey, I'm going to get you a helper, but, but first of all, let's just get in your first job. Your first job is like the first thing you teach all of your kids, Right? Name the animals. What are the animal sounds? What does a dog say? Rough. What does a cat say? You know, what, just name the animals. He says, I want you to start naming the animals. Now, why does God give him that first job? Is God out of ideas? He's like, man, ugh. If someone else, I've been thinking about so many things. Like, can someone else put some mental bandwidth to naming these animals? Like, what is that? Like, like I don't know, aardvark. Man, very creative, Adam. That's, that's impressive. What's, what, what's, what's that one? Oh, that'll be a kangaroo. Well done. Okay, awesome. What about that one? Beaver. Great. What about that one? Dog. Hey, are you running out of ideas? That's God backwards. Like, what's going on, what's going on here? <laughs> but each time, Adam, God is teaching Adam something. He's saying, Adam, I want you to see the joy of working alongside me. And you're going to work and you're going to create. You're going to, you're going to speak something and I'm going to say yes. I'm going to affirm your choice and let's move forward. Yes, that's its name. Let's go with that one. That sounds good. Our, that's great. That's a great name. Let's go with that one. Elephant, sure. And, and each time he names, God says, that's it. That's it. And what God is doing is an incredible teaching tool. Um, Howard Hendricks in his book, Teaching to Change Lives, says this. It's a great little quote. I think he stole from someone else, but I think it's really helpful. And it says this, tell me and I'll forget Show me and I'll remember. Involve me and I'll understand. And what God is doing in this moment is involving Adam in this process of working alongside of him. That's a great tool for your kids. Don't just tell them. Don't just show them. Involve them. Let them experience what, the joy of working alongside of you. So if you're replacing something on your faucet, bring your son or daughter along to experience that with you. Are you working on your car? Great. Bring your son and daughter along to experience that alongside you. Are you balancing your books? Oh, that's exciting. Bring your son and daughter-in-law to understand what is going on and why you are doing these things. I, my wife does this with my kids all the time. She says, will you help cook with me? 
experience what it's like to put these resources together and make something together. It's beautiful. You were meant to take your skills and their resources to work alongside God and create. And some work, every work, has dignity and value when it's done under the authority of God. All work that's in line with God's design. So things I would encourage you to think about, and I'm helpful, thankful for Tim Keller for this, is he tells you to look three places to find your place of work in the world. He tells you to look up, or look in, look out, and look up. The first place he says is to look in. What skills has God put within you to work? Where's your, what are your natural talents? What do you gravitate towards? Those, those are things that are, God has uniquely given to you. You look, you look in. Secondly, you look out. What's the need in the world? And how are you bringing order to what is chaos? And many of us, have we've never actually like paired our work to God's work in this way. We haven't, we haven't drawn that connection. So let me just draw some of those connections for you. For if you're a, a doctor, for example, you're bringing order to an unhealthy body. If you're a janitor, you're bringing order to a dirty environment that no one wants to be in until you're there to help make it livable. If you're a teacher, you're bringing order into the kids, in kids' minds to understand facts and details and how to read and write and, and think. If you're an engineer, you're creating order with numbers and things that I don't understand to help bring order in that area. If you're a musician, all of these notes that would make no sense if I was pounding a string, you're making them come together in a beautiful way. If you're a business manager, you're stepping into a company and and you're seeing um, people that disagree or fighting or, or resources that need to come and you're bringing order in that environment out of chaos. If you're a home worker, you're bringing order to your family lives and schedules in the home. If you're a farmer, it's easy. You're bringing order out of a chaotic land. If you're a pastor, anyone? <laughs> you're helping people order their lives under the hand of a loving God and leading us in that direction. All of us have dignity and value in our work as we see it under God's design. It's beautiful. You're created to work. But lastly, you're created to have a people. You're created to have community. Read with me in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man that he should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and they came and and each one, it says that there was not one found suitable for him. So verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its flesh in its place. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Here's what you see in this last section. Everything that God had created was good. Everything was perfect. It was delight. But then he looked at man and he says, okay, there's, there's one thing not good. It's the first thing that's not good spoken of in these first two chapters. It wasn't good for man to be alone. Now why say that? I mean, was he alone? Didn't he have God? 
I mean, wasn't it enough to say like, hey, you, you've got God? I mean, later on in Genesis 3, it's going to say that he walked with God in the cool of the day. Like, why did he need someone else? Why have a, a counterpart to him? Well, it's because God actually always existed as a trinity. He eternally existed as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There was no point in which God was ever alone in that sense. That he existed eternally in a community of love. And as he creates man, he says, and I want you to experience the, the community of what it looks like to be in relationship with others. He says, you don't have all the tools to accomplish the purposes in which I placed you alone. He says, you need a helper suitable. And that, that word helper, I, I, it's, it's a, not a great translation. I don't know a better word, but it's not a great translation because we think helper, like he's got all these opportunities and things he can build and he just needs like a helper, like someone to hold a hammer while he builds the cabin. Like what's going on here? Like, no, that, that word helper, God uses actually to describe himself more than anything else. That God helps us. It's a term of power, of support, of strength. She is one that is, that is different than him. And she is meant to cover in many ways where he doesn't meet um, and can't fulfill the purposes of God. He can't fulfill the purposes of God alone. He needs someone that corresponds, that's different, but corresponds to him. And I love this moment as God is parading the animals before him. He's like, will this helper be suitable? And he's like, well, that's like a cool rat, but I don't know if it kind of meets all my needs. Um, the next one, like, hey, there's a dog. And you're like, hey, well, that's pretty much man's best friend. Is there anything else that's needed? And he's like, no, no, no. And he brings a woman. And then when, when the woman is brought to him, he busts into poetry. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man because whoa, man, like this is incredible. This is so much better than the dog. Like this is amazing, right? And, and God oversees the first wedding. He walks the bride down the aisle and oversees the first beautiful wedding in this moment. And the two shall become one flesh. And yes, there is so much to be said about marriage and the beauty of marriage. But I think this is really helpful, an insight from, from Alan P. Ross in his commentary, Creation and Blessing. He says that the man and the woman correspond to become one flesh must not be limited to the physical level. They help one another serve the Lord and keep his command so that they might continue their life and his representation in the world. It's not enough to just have a playmate. You need someone that's gonna help you fulfill the purposes of God that you've been put on this earth for. And we do that in the context of community. You were not meant to live alone. And all sorts of studies, all sorts of research recently have been kind of highlighting this issue that there's a loneliness epidemic in the United States. And all people are pointing all different directions as to what the problem is. Is it social media? Is it some social isolation? Like there's all sorts of things that we're pointing to that, that could be the causes of the problem. But at the end of the day, the reason we feel alone is because we are broken from our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And there's lots of sources we use to medicate us because the feeling of being separate from our Creator is a deep weight that is at the center of every human heart. Blaise Pascal says it this way, there's a vacuum in every human heart. 
and we seek to replace that vacuum with any number of things. The common three are sex, money, and success. That's what we we chase. But none of those are meant to satisfy the human heart. None of those will meet the deep parts of your heart. And God says, look, if you order your life under me and walk in relationship with me, in the people that I've put around you, those are the tools, that's what you're meant for. And Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life we could not. He died the death we deserve to die to bridge us into right relationship under our heavenly Father. And Jesus wasn't just a good man. He claimed to be God. In fact, often in the New Testament, he would say, "Um, I only do the works my father is doing. And then the Pharisees at that point in time, they're like, wait a minute, you're, you're claiming to be equal with God? He will also say, before Abraham was, I am. He takes on that covenant name of God and applies it to himself. And Jesus says, I am God who was there at the beginning, who helped form creation, and I'm doing the works that my Father did. And listen, if you want to be restored in right relationship with your Heavenly Father that is leading the world in this way, you come to me. And since we come to him, then we have the order to set our life in, to be in relationship with God, to know our place in the world, to know our purpose and to be surrounded by a beautiful family of God that he's building. See, that's what you're made for. That's what I'm made for. That's what you're made for. And so a couple things I just want you to think about as we we close this morning. One, One is this. I would ask the question, where are you connected? Where are you connected? So many of us live disconnected lives. We We go to work, we drive home and drive into our garage, we close the garage behind us, we go upstairs into our house, we connect with our friends, and we live like this this very isolated life. But that's not what you're made for. You're made for community. And, and, And there's a barrier to that I think all of us feel. Like, how do I break into community? How do I find friends? Like, I've got a lot of friends on Facebook, but like, no one that exists in human form. So how do I get a real friend? Well, we're gonna give you an opportunity today to at least start that process as we close the service in a few minutes. I would encourage you to join one of our collective teams. Collective is that general term we use to describe every serve team that we have. So greeting at the door, serving in kids, serving in production, serving with our students, all of those are under the big banner of collective. And so my question is, are you, are you serving alongside everyone? Like, okay, wait a minute, Kevin, you talked about relationship and friendship, and now you're talking about me, like, greeting people? Like, how does that connect? Men? Oftentimes, the way you most connect with people isn't face-to-face, it's shoulder-to-shoulder. It's working alongside one another. It's serving alongside one another. It's actually doing the work alongside one another. And as you do the work alongside one another, you realize, oh, there's relationships beginning to form here. So my challenge to you is to get into the game of, of serving one another. Be a part of serving one another And as you work alongside God and and build what he is building, it gives meaning to your work. And that's just one aspect. 
Let me give you three statements to close in application, to think about as we close. Number one is this, you're made for a relationship with God. Do you know him this morning? Have you, have you sought to know him and walk with him? Number two, you're created to create. So maybe some of you need to do some time to figure out what are you made for? What are your gifts? What are your spiritual gifts? What are your natural talents? And, and what is your contribution to the work that God is doing in the world? Do some time thinking about that. And number three, you're created for community. What are you going to make as your first step in this new year to say, I'm going to take a step out of being lonely and isolated and into the community that God is forming? And let me tell you, some, God's doing something really special and beautiful here at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball. And I'll tell you what, we will be better as you step in. So let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for what you are building and Lord, thank you that you created us for connection with you to work as you have worked and to work alongside one another. Lord, I pray that we would get a better picture this morning of what it looks like to serve under your loving hand. And Lord, I know this morning that there's individuals that have never put their faith in you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, I pray that that would be the starting point, that we'd be in right relationship with our heavenly Father, and out of that relationship, we would then move and work. Lord, thank you for this morning. I lift up each person here that you would hold them, protect them, and guide them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, our prayer team is going to come forward and give you an opportunity to respond. And, and I'll, let me tell you, there's, there's going to be two closes today. It's kind of like a Lord of the Rings film. There's going to be a lot. Um, the first one is to respond in prayer. And, and we believe that God answers prayer. So if there is a healing that you need, if there is a struggle that you're facing, if there's just connection that you're desiring, come forward. Or if there's a friend or a family member that needs prayer, they're, they're going through something and, and you want someone to pray alongside of you, now's the time to respond in that way. And then after we close, in a, um, we're gonna have an opportunity to actually get plugged in with our collective team. So you're not gonna wanna, you're not gonna miss that. So would you stand together as we close and respond as the Lord guides you? Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Tomball app to find community in the body of Christ.